Hello, welcome to Human Tech, a podcast about the intersection between humans and technology. My name is Guthrie. I'm here with Susan. Hello, Susan. Hi, Guthrie. And we have a uh, very fantastic guest today. Uh, Susan, do you want to do the introductions? Okay, I'll do that. We have with us Todd Churches, and he's an executive coach. Um, He's the CEO of Big Blue Gumball. He's also an agile professor of leadership at New York University, NYU. And he's the author of a book, and we're going to talk about that, uh, which is called Visual Leadership. So welcome, Todd. Thank you, Susan. It's great being with you and, and Guthrie. I've been a longtime fan of your work. I teach uh, your 100 Things uh, books in a couple of my workshops. So uh, it's great to be on with you live. And how to get people oh. to do stuff is another favorite of mine. So, uh, Oh, yeah. thank you. Sure. Yay. I love having fans. <laughs> Back to, for, for those on video. Oh, oh, oh my gosh. They're always, they're always within arm's reach, and they're filled with, especially the presenter book, filled with circles, underlines, highlights. We wow. speak the same language. You're, even though you said to me you're not a visual person, you speak like a very visual person. So we could get into that. Yeah, okay. I do. We, we will, we'll definitely have to do that. I yeah. I will say we, we are yeah. not. We are not uh, bereft uh, of books, yes. Yeah, and we both recently read the visual leadership book, so I know we're gonna. I know we're gonna talk about. So that. let's let's start here. Yeah, um, Todd, do you want to just give just a sixty one or two minute just summary of the book, maybe why you wrote it? what it is because uh i'm i'm assuming that anyone listening probably has never heard of it before i just want to give just sort of a well that's lay not the very land. nice so he's famous uh, i don't think people who have who are watching this have read our books mm. okay we don't we don't make any assumptions about our audience well, we, yeah, yeah we, need to, we need to keep getting the word out so uh yeah so the idea behind visual leadership is that uh, and and the book the title is spelled visual leadership one word uh, with a shared capital L. And the idea behind visual leadership is that who you are and how you lead is inseparable from the lens through which you see the world, based on your background, your upbringing, your life experiences, culture, etc. So when we talk about leadership, which uh, one of the most common words or phrases is to have a leadership vision or to be a visionary leader. And that all has to do with seeing, right? Um, a leader has a picture in, a, in his or her mind's eye, almost a mental movie of a future that has not yet happened. Um, and the challenge is how do I art- um, clarify that vision in my own head, but then communicate that vision in a clear and compelling way to other people so it brings it to life. So one of my mantras is I see what you're saying. How do you get people to see what you're saying? And so as a leader, if you have um, give people directives or delegate or something and people don't do what you want and expect it, whose fault is that? We didn't communicate our vision effectively to say, this is what I envisioned in my mind, what I wanted the outcome to look like. So the backstory is I, my dream was to work in television. I talk about this in my TED talk about how I want to be either Superman or Batman, but in lieu of that, I would pursue a career in Hollywood. So I grew up in New York. You can probably tell I have a little bit of an accent and I talk really fast, even though I'm an extreme introvert. But I worked in advertising at Ogilvy and made their advertising in New York for a year and then moved out to L.A. where I worked a series of jobs in the TV industry. Um, I work in the entertainment field. So I worked for Michael Nesmith of the Monkees. Baby boomers know who he is. My younger oh, students have no idea. Catherine, do you know who that is? Uh, so there are two quick points. One. Okay. 
I am terrible with names. So uh-huh. I don't like the uh-huh. names of actors and musicians yeah, no. and people I like bands I I currently follow. I don't know the names okay. of the people in the band. I do know the monkeys. Okay. I don't know up. yeah, I don't know all the members of the monkeys by name. Yeah, the monkeys were the wannabe, the aspirational TV version of the Beatles. Let's put it that way. Yes. When they were created. Um, so I work for, for one of the monkeys, and then I work for Aaron Spelling, uh, just putting scripts together for Dynasty. And then I was in casting at Columbia Pictures Television, comedy at Disney, and then drama program development at CBS. So those were my years in the TV industry before I left for reasons I could go into, but I transitioned into the theme park business as a project manager. And my origin story of my visual thinking. Uh, I tell this story in my TED talk called The Power of Visual Thinking, is I was in China um, to oversee the installation of a theme park project, and they spoke no English, we spoke no Chinese, so we just started sketching and drawing and pointing. So it became like Pictionary and Charades trying to communicate, (laughs) and yet we somehow managed to do it, and that was like, in retrospect, the light bulb moment of, hey, we don't just communicate with words, and I was an English literature major, so I love words, I concentrated in Shakespeare and poetry, but... It's the visual images that the words create that gets our ideas out there into the world. Um, so that's the, I'll, I'll stop there, but that's the origin story of how, when I eventually became an executive coach and got into management training and leadership development, I incorporated my visual concepts into my coaching and training practice and my teaching uh, at NYU and Columbia. And that is how um, visual leadership was born. So when I kept talking about it, teaching about it, and people kept saying, you need to write a book encapsulate all of your concepts in one place so that's what i eventually did and my book came out a couple of years ago um so yeah so that's my origin story that brings us to today. yeah you know it's interesting as you were talking i was thinking about um a lot of the client work that guthrie and i do and uh, it's so common i mean i think it, it is the most common thing is that people who we work with who are leaders at their company, they never, you know, started off as leaders and they didn't even officially train as a leader, right? They just, they, they're an expert at whatever their particular work is, their area of engineering expertise or whatever it is. And then they move up in the company and now they are a leader and they are supposed to have a vision and they are supposed to communicate that. And, and they may not even realize that, there's a way to do that or there's some ways to do that that are really effective and they're they're just you know they're lacking in these skills they may not even know that yeah. this is a skill they need yeah yeah most people like like you were saying it's like right, bob you're a top salesperson. you're now our new sales manager it's like that's a completely selling is completely different skill set than managing people and leading people who sell right and it's in every field in it in it doesn't matter what it is. Uh, in sports, right? You're the best athlete, so why don't we make you the coach? That's not the same skill set, right? In fact, in, yeah. in professional sports, many, most of the best athletes made the worst coaches and managers yeah. when they were put in those roles. So um, it's, it's a pattern. And it really wasn't until when I moved back from L.A. to New York after 10 years out there working in the entertainment industry. I moved back for personal reasons. And I got a job at a management training company, and I, they asked me to revamp their mini MBA program. So even though I didn't have an MBA, I have a master's in communication. Um, 
I had managed people, but I didn't really know what I was doing. So I started reading all these management leadership books, and it was just like amazing that, that you know people write about this stuff. So, um, and it's a, it's an art, and it's a science, and it's a skill that can be learned and, and developed over time, right? So that was my re realization, and the revelation was that hey, most people are thrown in without any training, coaching, uh, resources, tools, tips, techniques. So that's what I've. You know, my mission, personal mission statement is make, helping to make the world a better place one leader at a time. And to me, everyone is a leader. So when we talk about leadership, it's not just top-down CEO, VP. It really is everyone, even if you're just leading your own life and managing your own life, you are managing and leading, and you need these tools in order to be successful. Um, Susan, do you want me to start asking questions? Do you got more questions? I have one more question, and then I'll let you start asking questions. That sounds good. What do you think... You know, you write about a lot of different topics in the book. What do you think is the hardest thing for people to learn and practice or let go of or, you know, as they are, um, you know, let's assume that they get the book, that they're intrigued, that they say, yeah, I need to be able to communicate my vision better. What do you think is the hardest thing for people to, to actually change? Um, well, one is, and this, what's interesting is the biggest point is not actually in the book and it didn't come to me until after I chose the book cover. So if you look at the book cover, there's a rainbow colored eye and the rainbow colored eye represents the fact that just as no one in the world has a rainbow colored eye, anyone, no one I've ever met, no one in the world sees the world through the same lens that you do. Even if you are identical twins as my father and my uncle were raised in the same home, genetically identical you still see the world through a different in a different way. So that's one of the main things that is really hard for people to grasp. So if you're a leader and you say, well, why didn't you just do this? Or you should have just done that. People didn't see it the same way, right? So I think that's the biggest thing, that realization that everyone sees the world through their own lens. So the rainbow colored eye represents both diversity, inclusion, equity, and belonging. And the fact that people see things differently and it represents all the colors of the crayon box that we need to use creativity and innovation in order to communicate that vision in living color. You know, those of us who grew up with black and white TVs before we got finally got color know the difference between, you know, seeing just the essence of something versus, you know, the bright, you know, brightly colored reality of things. So I think that's the biggest thing is seeing through the lens of others, trying to, when you communicate, to get someone else to see what you're saying, you need to try to see the world through their lens speak their language, use metaphors and examples and stories that will resonate with them. So I have a million stories like that, um, how you know we, we kind of make ourselves dinosaurs. In fact, I keep a dinosaur, for those watching on video, here's my dinosaur I keep on my desk to remind me, don't be a dinosaur. So if I'm, <laughs> if I'm you know, using an example you know, that, that was current in the 1980s or 90s and my 25 year old student from Beijing, she's gonna have no idea. If I make a Seinfeld reference, for example, the Seinfeld fans will get it instantly, right? And it's like, and it's a bond. Yet it, it, it will confuse and alienate someone who doesn't even know who Seinfeld is, right? So um, I use life is like a box of what chocolates, and why is that? Because you never know what you're going to get. Most of my students had never seen the movie Forrest Gump. They had never heard that quote before, so they didn't know chocolates. Box of chocolates was the answer. And then even when I told them that, they didn't understand the reason why. Right. So yeah. it's like we use expressions, idioms, metaphors, analogies, stories all the time. But we need to tell those you choose the ones and use the ones that will resonate with our audience, our listener, our readers. So I think that's my long answer to we need to see things through the lens of others if we really want to be effective and successful. Yeah, I find uh, I think what 
I've had an interesting experience recently where I started paying attention to the metaphors and sayings I was using. And then once you do, it's good because then you catch yourself. And I had no idea until I really put a spotlight on it how many references and metaphors I use like that, put a spotlight, like like put a spotlight on it. Yes, that <laughs> no one understands. Like it's just yeah. this con. It's like I didn't. If you'd said, "Do you use a lot of you know phrases and metaphors like that?" I would have said, "Oh no, no, I don't." And then it was like, "Oh my god, my whole conversation is filled with this stuff," yeah. and and some of it I don't even know what it means. So of course, yeah. no one else is going to know it. So now I find my at least now I still do it. At least now, a lot of times I'll do it and then I'll go and I'll even say, I bet you that metaphor doesn't make any sense, does it? Yeah, two real life examples. One time at my NYU class, I said something, I got complete silence. And I said something like, <laughs> sounds like it's like sound of silence in here. I'm like, does everyone know the song Sound of Silence? And there was silence. Silent, more <laughs> silence. And I said, Simon Gar- silence. And I said, who is Simon Garfunkel? They said, a, a, ma- a law firm, a management consulting firm. Name recognition there. So it's like that one. And then another time I said, I, re- I repeated myself a few times. I said, I'm trying to feel like a broken record. My <laughs> students thought a broken record was like in the Olympics when you break a world record and win a gold medal because they've never listened to a vinyl album with the needle getting stuck, which is with the origin of broken record, right? So like if you've never had that life experience of that needle getting stuck in the album, then how are you supposed to know what's sounding like a broken record yeah. means, right? So, but again, with that awareness, then we could like in a split second shift to another. So I use a lot of baseball analogies because I'm a big baseball fan, Yankees and Mets. But if I'm talking to someone from another culture, soccer may resonate more or tennis is universal to all cultures. So you just hit the pause button for a second, metaphor, and then you shift to what's another analogy. So if I'm talking, nature is universal. So I could say, I want to plant the seed for an idea, branch out in new directions. Let's get to the root of the problem. Let's see which ideas bear fruit. If we do, the sky's the limit. So right there, I just use five or six different nature tree related metaphors that anyone could understand. So that's what's something we need to think about. Again, are we yeah. alienating our audience with our language or are we yeah. creating commonality and connection and understanding? You know, and 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 uh, generationally, this goes both directions. Yes. Because I think um, everyone just you know, is enmeshed in their own metaphors and analogies and doesn't realize that yeah. Yeah, other people students, might not. Yeah, one of my students sent me an email the other day and she signed it, capital B, capital R, small s. And I ran it by my wife. I'm like, any clue, any idea. Do you know what that stood for? Capital B, capital R, small s, comma, and then her name? No, Guthrie, best you? Best regards. It was her, in the brief. I was, was going to guess best regards, yeah. yeah. I, I was, but I, but I, I had the B and the R, best regards. But then the S, I didn't, yeah. I didn't know why would you, why would you add an S at so the I end? I spent like three minutes, wasted time. You know, <laughs> I'll never get back trying to decipher, you know, uh, what that meant. But again, that, again, just you know, je- the stories and, a- and metaphors, but also the acronyms, the jargon we use. Yeah, like I know you have a definitely. tech following audience. It's th- all these terminolo- terminology in the tech field. I teach leadership in the HR master's program at NYU. And we do an exercise where we come up with as many HR terms, acronyms, yeah. jargon as we can think of and say, all right, if you wanted to convince your CFO, some people don't even know what that stands for, to fund an LMS, learning management system, yeah. 
how are you going to do that unless they see the ROI return on that investment, <laughs> right? So it's like we use acronyms all the time, but if we're yeah. not like we're speaking different languages and yet, yeah. so if you want to have impact and influence and get someone to buy in and give you money for something or, or green light something, which again, metaphor, um, we need to speak the, a common language. So visual yeah. leadership will help you to do that because you start to see things through the lens of other people. Then you can modify your stories and your metaphors and your examples to find that common ground. Yeah. All right, Guthrie, I'll pause and let you ask some questions. Okay. So my first uh, my first question is I wanted to talk about um, uh, I'll, we'll we'll start it's it's we'll, we'll we'll go a circuitous route but that's only because you started by talking about uh, people who get promoted. Okay. All right. But if following up on Susan's question earlier, uh, I um, you know I, I remember hearing and I just want your thoughts on this. Uh, a you know, people were interviewing famous sports athletes. And why don't amazing athletes make great coaches? And sometimes, yeah, you're an amazing athlete because of your physical prowess or whatever, and that wouldn't translate into coaching. But many athletes have incredible drive, are, you know, see the game at a higher level than anyone else, and should make for fantastic coaches. They understand what it takes to win in this particular spot better than anyone else. And the reason I was told was, because they are so transcendently good that the game to them, and this, this would apply across industry, they're so good at what they do that they just don't understand people who aren't at their level. And so especially when it comes to training or dealing with people who aren't you know, the greatest at whatever of all time, they get very frustrated because they don't understand why people don't see it the way that they, in their genius way, doing that thing, see that. See that. Does that resonate with you? Does that sound like like a like a reason why people who are good, really, really, really good at a task, don't make often don't make the best coaches and leaders? Yeah, the highest quality talent, they have a certain some certain degree of natural talent, quote unquote natural. They work really hard at it, so they have a, a level of determination. They do they practice correctly, but also what works for one person doesn't necessarily work for another. So yeah, you know, the, the classic example is like Michael Jordan, right? The you know greatest of you know, top three, if not the greatest basketball player of all time. To just say just do what I do, right, or just be Michael, be like Mike, which is the you know one of the Nike slogans. It's, it's impossible, right? So you need to find your own way to success. You need to find a way that works for you. So whether you're a manager saying, why didn't you do it that way? This is the way I always do it. Because people, again, see things differently. They What works for one person doesn't necessarily work for another. Um, so the, the list is lengthy of Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, of top athletes of all time, Hall of Famers, who did not make very good coaches. So you need to be able to explain and articulate. You need to be able to motivate and inspire. Some people may feel demotivated, like I can never be Michael Jordan. So it's like they become deflated. So I think there's a variety of reasons. But um, And then the flip side of that is why was someone a, not a great all-star athlete? They were okay. They were mediocre, but become an amazing manager or coach in baseball or basketball or football. What made them so good? Um, what's interesting, I posed this question in my baseball chapter of the book, of all the positions on the field, what position did most managers play when they were players? And it is, I don't know how big baseball fans you are, but it's the catcher. 
Why is that? The catcher is the field general. The catcher is the only one facing out. Everyone else is facing in, right? The catcher has to have personal relationships and communicate and almost read the mind of the pitcher. You need to be in sync with one another. You need to be thinking about well, who's not just not just the next batter, but who's the who's coming up like two or three batters away. So you need to think strategically, anticipate what's happening in the future. So being a catcher on a baseball field trains your brain to think more strategically. The other positions are more reactive. As a catcher, you need to be more proactive. So just that thinking orientation, you do that for many years, and you're basically the field manager. So to transition to being the manager of a team is not as big a leap. So that's just one example of how our brains need to develop. And also we talk about management training and leadership development, right? I could teach someone an eight-step process for how to delegate or how to give feedback or, or whatever, but management managers are trained, leaders are developed. So if you just think about the difference between training and development, the implication of development is that happens not overnight, but over time, right? So if someone brings me in and says, we want to do a leadership development program for our people, but we only have Thursday afternoon from three to four, right? You're not gonna come out of that one hour session as a greater leader. I could teach you a management process, but leadership has to happen over time through practice, through experience, right? Through developing your, it's more um, self, you know, it's about, it's the people side of things. So that's what I would say too, is there's the hard skills, which is the technical functional skills of our jobs, but then there's the soft skills, which is your ability to relate to people, communicate, motivate, with empathy and compassion, understanding. So that's one of the key differences. We need the hard skills and the soft skills, but just to say to someone, oh, you're great at what you do, whether it's basketball or sales or whatever, and you're now a manager or leader, that's just not the reality of how we get to the higher levels of those management leadership uh, skills. Mm -hmm. Does that resonate? Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, Susan, does that, does that sound right? Yeah, absolutely. I think... Uh, it is very interesting that it, it's like this magical balance because on one hand, you, it's like you need to have a certain level of like cachet and respect and buy-in. So if you like stroll into the sales floor, it's like, I'm the new manager of the sales floor. Mm -hmm. I was the worst sales rep for uh -huh. four years at a medium sales company. And I'm going to come in and I'm going to tell you all what to do. Right. So like, like you need a certain level of proficiency like, in what you do. Yeah. yeah. Even, even though that might actually not have a whole lot of bearing on whether you're actually a good leader or whether you're a good trainer. Um, yeah, so, I think, but, I think but there, need, yeah, there needs to be some sort of proficiency for people to want to buy in. Yeah, if you're, if you're like, I'm the new head of finance, but I can't do math, I can't do even basic math, I can't add two numbers together, that's not good, right? So you need to have, a, I think, a foundational, because um, think about the complexity of work today. As a leader, back in the old days, as a manager leader, you needed to be able to understand or and possibly even do the job of everyone who reported to you. That is no longer the case. Now you're more of an orchestra leader. So think about that. the new Leonard Bernstein movie just came out, right? You could conduct an orchestra and not know how to play a single instrument, but you need to be able to read music. You need to have a feel for music and, and synthesis and bringing people together and harmony, right? So you need to have a certain foundational knowledge and experience so you don't have to be the best drummer, guitarist, violinist, whatever the instruments are in a band or orchestra to conduct that orchestra or to lead that band, right? So I think that's another good analogy of you in today's world, you can't, and of complexity, you just can't do everyone's job. 
but you need to be able to get the best and the most out of everyone who reports to you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I think, I think we'll, I think we'll move on unless you want to add anything else about really, really talented people who are, who, who become coach. I, I'm one last thought, I guess that, that, it, that has come to mind. It is very fascinating that many people who are good, either trainers, teachers, or leaders usually had a parent who was a coach, a trainer, a teacher, uh, a leader as well. Um, so like a lot of, a lot of, a lot of good coaches in sports, their, you know, dad was a coach at some level. Um, and they, you know, like, like they maybe tried to become a professional and it, yeah, maybe they were okay and re- rode the bench and then they became this great kind of coach later in life. But it's cause they, they usually there's a nexus where they learned how to lead and train from someone along the way. Yeah. In some cases, like if you look at like, you know, the, the father of Serena and Venus Williams, right. He was someone who, you know, he was not a great tennis player and yet he coached his daughters to be two of the greatest of all time. Right. So whether it's a parent, a, a teacher, a coach, yes, usually there's some influence, some coach or mentor in your life who took you under their wing and showed you the ropes and also helped you to recognize your potential, right? So that's another thing too. So we could talk for hours about what makes a good coach or mentor or inspirational leader. Um, but you know, some people come to things later in life, some people earlier in life. So Tiger Woods' father groomed him to be a golfer from you know age three, you know, if not earlier. So it really is one of those, I think it's all across the spectrum. So it's always interesting to go back, rewind the tape metaphorically and see where and how people started. So I'm always fascinated by origin stories, whether it's superheroes, like how did Spider-Man become Spider-Man and Superman become Superman? But also, you know, like for example, both of you are doing something in your lives. Like Susan, you know, how do you get, you know, we could talk about that another time, but your hundred things books, like how did that come to be? You didn't just wake up one day and say, oh, I I just dreamed of a hundred things that we need to do, right? something led to your insights and your awareness and these tips that you wanted to share with the world. So what were, what are your thoughts? Like, how did you get from whatever you were doing before that to, you know, coming up with these books that I always keep on, I've been keeping on my desk for like 20 years and refer to, <laughs> right? Um, so they've influenced my teaching and my presenting and my design work and my influencing. So um, yeah. how would you respond to that? Like, how do you get to become the author of these books from what you where you were before that? I think there were, and uh, it was just recently. I don't, I don't even remember who I was talking to, but I kind of had some uh, w- one story I'll tell you. I was aware of from the beginning. The other story, I think, I, it took me a while to realize the impact that that had had. So, um, I was, you know, it's these wonderful random things that happen in your life. Um, and, and I've studied, you know, creativity and what's going on in your brain during creativity. So it's not as random as people think, but one experience that I had, I was, um, uh, in 2008, uh, I started a blog, you know, this is when blogging was very popular and I didn't have a blog and I thought I should have a blog. And so I started a blog and just wrote some ridiculous, boring blog posts, right? And then I was like, okay, now what am I going to do with it? You know, so I I hadn't answered that question, but that question was floating around in my mind. And then I saw a movie and the movie was Julie and Julia 
which was some people know about and other people mm. don't. As a movie from around that time period, 2008 or so, um, about uh, it, it based on a book, which so I saw the movie first, then I went and read the book. Uh, and it's a true story about a woman who starts a blog based on the fact that she's going to cook every recipe in the Julia Child recipe book. She's going to cook every every recipe in there like over the course of a year and, and blog about it. And um, she does this. And, you know, the book and the movie are all about her her experience with that and it eventually leads to uh, her meeting Julia Child and it also eventually leads to her you know having a really well-known famous blog at the time and then writing the book and having the movie right so she, it became a big success the yeah. fact that she wrote this blog and so me having just started the blog I was kind of fascinated and I thought about what made her blog like so successful and um, and what I decided was one thing was she took people on a journey. She said, I'm going to do all the recipes, you know, over the course of a year. So I thought, yeah, people like to go on a journey with you. Mm -hmm. And then, so then I thought, what, what journey could I take people on? And I thought I could, I could do a hundred things that you should know about people. That's what I should, uh, that's a journey I could go on. So I came up with this idea and I just, I started blogging. That's how the book started. Mm. It actually wasn't a book. It was the blog. And of course, about three things into the hundred, I said to myself, why did I say I was going to do this? Like, can I come <laughs> up with a hundred things? And, but I just kept going and I did, I don't know how long it took me, but I blogged about a hundred things and it did have legs. And yeah. People did start following it. Um, and then at some point later on, when I was talking to my publisher, because um, I had already published a couple of books, and we were talking about what book might you want to do next. And then I thought, well, maybe I'll take the 100 things and put them all together in a book. And that's what we did. Now, when as we did that, we changed, a lot changed, and the things changed, and I organized them. So it became a book unto itself. Um, but that was how the how the book came about. Um, so I feel like it was a a uh, just a collection of a couple things and a couple insights that came together. And I I I don't know. I think it was maybe the part of you know the right thing at the right time. Yeah. Um, I've I've been just thrilled at how successful it's been and. I'll be honest with you, somewhat surprised. Yeah. But there was one other thing that had happened years before that that I forgot about until recently. Um, I've, I think too much, uh, huh. <laughs> and I think I've always, you know, th thought about and been a seeker and a searcher. And you know, the years ago, um, and I still do it you know, what is my purpose in life, right? I mean, you know, this is just a theme for me. Um, and I remember waking up one day, I was, oh, this is a long time ago. And and it was like I had the answer to what my purpose in life was. I just woke up and there it was. And it was to um, make all the science about psychology and humans to make that um uh, easy for people to digest who are not 
you know, don't have a PhD in psychology and don't have all that academic background. But, you know, it was like everybody needs to know about humans. Mm -hmm. And my role will be to communicate that effectively to people who are not specialists. Yeah. And what's great about your work, it's not just understanding the inner workings, but it's the practical applications. Because I always say there needs to be a, there's a so what and a so that, right? So when you understand the so what of this is how the brain works, or this is how the brain responds, then what's the so that you could do what with it, right? So it's, it's the, yeah. one of my sayings is the true value of knowledge is not in its accumulation, but in its application. So I always say that to my students, anything we talk about, what's the real life practical application how do we turn ideas into actions and actions into results? So in your book, you do it one. It's you know very you you simplify complexity. It's also very visual um, use of color and charts, and you can see his my like in your book. Here are some of my sketches where I I sketch out <laughs> your ideas in a visual way because that's that's my way of mentally processing, processing it. Yeah. So that's just a real life example. That's on page one hundred seven of. Uh, your your people book so um but that's great so it's like you definitely achieved your purpose uh with me at least uh in in doing that so uh but that's great i love so again i love hearing origin stories like that like how did yeah. you i was curious too was it like oh i have 99 i need one more or was it like <laughs> oh i have 103 we're gonna have to cut these so because 100 is such a perfect round number so um i believe she got to 87 and was like oh god i need 13 more <laughs> okay yeah. And then I went probably to 110, and it was like, okay, now too many. There was I did I I gotta say it was like, why did I do a hundred things? You know, yeah. you gotta hit exactly a hundred, and so yeah. there was a lot of like, all right, I'll combine these About two. About a hundred things that you need to know. <laughs> Somewhere okay. around a hundred things right. that you need to know. Well, for me, one of my goals, and I uh, this is since 1998, since I got addicted to business books, I've been reading an average for a while. I was reading even more than that but I, I read an average of one business book a week which is 52 wow. a year so for this year 2023 it's now early december i just hit um i think 55 so i i flew past my 52 oh, wow. um so now what my year-end list I'm, I'm gonna try to get to 60 so i'll say the 60 books i read or am i gonna cut out eight that didn't really they were i read them but the, so i need to always figure out because my last couple of years i had my 52 books Although the year before I had 101 books that I read, that was during the pandemic when I had a lot yeah. more on my hands. So, um, so I blew. Also, I figured if I did 101 that year, then if I ever don't get to 52, I have like a backlog. Right. <laughs> That's like, right. You know, it's still, it'll still average out to you know 52 one a week over my. And I, I started that addiction back in 1998. So I'm on wow. 20, 25 That's years. That's a I lot read, of books. Yeah, it's over. I'm, I wasn't a math person, but it's uh, one, you know, 1,250 businesses. All right, question for you. Yeah. Rough percentage. What percentage of them would you say are like really good and, and you would recommend to people and people should read? I mean, it's almost like a bell curve. You know, a small percentage are amazing, life-changing. I'm going to never, I'm going to remember this one. I'm going to reread it and keep it on my book stand. Others yeah. are like, okay, you know, skimming this is enough. I, I get it. One yeah. of the challenges with leadership, it's very, the differences between most, most leadership is they just change the metaphor, right? Or they come up with the seven ways to do this or the 21 things you need to, yeah. but there's nothing new in that way. That's why I hope visual leadership, um, or that's the feedback I get. It's a new way of looking no, no pun intended, a new way of looking at leadership because it's being more aware of the visual components. And I break it down into four categories using visual imagery and 
things, information we could take in through our eyes. So that could be props, it could be drawings, PowerPoint slides. Category one is visual imagery. Category two is using mental models and frameworks. Category mm -hmm. three is using metaphor and analogy. And category four is using storytelling and humor if the humor is appropriate. So um, th those are my four categories. So just getting people to think in those terms and speak in those terms using visual imagery and visual language is a new way. For a lot of people, they say, oh, I've kind of been doing this, but I never had a language around it right. before. I never realized mm -hmm. I was doing it. So with this awareness, you become more aware of what other people are doing and you could be more strategic. Um, yeah. So I was talking to a coaching client. I just I, I showed you my dinosaur, but I have a million props on my desk. So one of my clients was talking about something. I said, "Well, you're not addressing the elephant in the room because he was avoiding like the main thing we weren't talking about." So I just held, held that up. You know, one of my clients was speaking, not being very flexible. I was saying, "You need to be more like um, okay." So you need Guthrie, to I I need. Can we put some uh, props in our budget? Because I need yeah. some of these props. This is great. I'm curious about something. I need to ask. Uh, you for, for those listening at home, not <laughs> watching, uh, Todd has been has been pulling on screen a collection of various toys and stuffed animals, all of which are applicable to the uh, topic and, in question. And many of them are chapters in my books. You know, similarly, I don't know if you have Baskin Robbins out there, but we want to give people a little pink spoon sample of what we're talking about, so that they will come back and want to get the whole cone or the half gallon worth of of what we're offering. So again, I could go on for hours. But again, I always say to my client, there's no magic wand. You actually have to you have to do the work. So sometimes I'll wave my magic wand and say, you know, if this isn't going to happen magically, you need to actually put your head down and do the work. I like, so anyway, I like I get, the props. Yeah. So again, the you know, it may, it's visual. I, in my TED Talk and in my book, I talk about attention, comprehension, and retention. Attention is how do you get people to focus. Comprehension is how to get people to understand. And retention is how to get people to remember. So when you use visual imagery and visual language, it captures people's attention. It's like, okay, I get it. And they're not going to forget it. When you do something that's goofy or fun, that's an example of incorporating humor, if and when appropriate, into something. And you're just not going to remember, you know, your executive coach just held up a little toy dinosaur or a Curious George doll. Yeah. Just, you know, and imagine keeping that on your desk as a tangible yep. reminder every day that I need to be more curious. I need to be more flexible. I need to not be a dinosaur. So that's again, that's how the brain works. So if you could translate an abstract concept or goal into something tangible, concrete, and visual, and if possible, humorous, it's going to have greater impact, and it's actually going to change your behavior and change your outcome. So it's not just frivolous or fun. No, there are no, real practical yeah. applications to what we're talking. You know, about. I have a I have a client that I that I'm working with, and Guthrie was actually the one that came up with with a metaphor um, that I then used in my conversation with the client because I I was struggling with an interaction, and he said. Uh, this person keeps bringing you um, a dead mouse to oh, yeah. to deal the, with. You know, like, it's like this. It was this person that kept bringing me things that they would lay on my doorstep, uh, and then like I'm problems. supposed to yeah. problems that I'm supposed to fix, but it's not my job to fix them. But I would feel like I should fix them, and so he said to me, "Stop picking up the dead mouse," and and so then uh, it was like, oh. Yeah, which really helped me a lot. Yeah. So then I had one of my clients who I thought was doing the same thing, and I told her the dead mouse story. And then um, on, 
I surprised her. I, I sent her a stuffed mouse, oh, you know, and, awesome. and she now keeps that on her desk and every now and then she'll reach for it and she'll wave it on camera. Uh, you know, she's like, I'm not going to pick up this dead mouse. You know, see, you are a visual person. Cause that's a great example of doing that. Cause there's really a helpful. There's a classic Harvard Business Review article, one of their great biggest reprints. It's called Who's Got the Monkey? And the monkey represents a task sure. or burden similar to the dead mouse. It's like when as a manager, you delegate to someone, you gave you give them the monkey. Then they come back right. to your offense and say, I'm stuck, I can't do this. Do you train and coach them and leave them with the monkey? Or do you say, All right, just leave it here and I'll do right. it? And you have right. five people reporting to you who all come back to you with their monkeys. And then what happens? You have all these monkeys climbing <laughs> on your desk and rummaging through your papers and hanging on your shoulders. When do you get your own work done? Yeah. You didn't use that as sorry, a training and coaching opportunity. So that monkey is very similar to the dead mouse, right? Yeah. It's kind of like yeah. a visual metaphor that is uh brings things to life. And it's a great reminder of uh of something that you know it's a great way to break patterns, it's a great it way to get into good habits. One of my clients during the pandemic, people were wrestling with um when they were on Zoom all the time and you know the work-life balance thing, people felt like they were always working all the time. This yeah. client, their color was orange. They sent everyone in the company a pair of orange slippers that when you're at work, quote unquote, wear the slippers when you're at your desk. And then when you're off work, you just tuck the slippers under your desk and you say, I'm done for the day. So that's you, that's a tangible reminder of when you're quote at work. So yeah. even, if you, even if you took the afternoon off, you may do two hours of work at night, put those slippers on. It's like, yeah. you know, you know, the magic slippers from the Wizard of Oz only, they were orange fluffy slip-on. But just that, <laughs> but, and another company sent out wristbands. Like when you're on work, that people felt like they were like shackles and it was like, there was a negative association with yeah. that. Like wearing, but again, it was like, we don't have an on or off switch. So we, they needed some kind of symbolic, tangible, visual yes. way to represent when I'm working and when I'm not. So whatever works, but again, that's an interesting use of color and we didn't get even get into color and how color factors in, but um, you know, all of these things we're talking about are great ways to change behaviors, create insight, etc. Yeah. All right, Guthrie, did you have another thing you wanted to talk about? Yeah. Let's see. Uh, which which way to go? Because we don't have forever. Um, were there any particular chapters that resonated with you personally? It's always interesting to me to hear, like, oh, I love this one, or this one really hit me. So it's, it's always curious to hear um, if there was anything that really jumped out at you. Um, uh, yeah, I have I have some notes here. Um, I liked uh, two, two things in particular. I liked small little moments. Um, I liked the five frogs on a log riddle. Okay. That's a class. That, that was great. Here's my oh, frog. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the five frogs on the log was good, um, which I, I don't know if, if you if you want to tell it, you can. Otherwise, yeah, the, the very quick version is you have five frogs on a log. One decides to jump into the pond. How many are left? Still five. He decided to jump into the pond, but he didn't, he didn't actually do it. Right. So there's a huge difference, a huge leap you need to take from deciding to do something and actually doing it. So um, that's that, in essence, that's I didn't come up with that, but that's a, a metaphorical tale or story that uh, really resonates with people. The, the decision uh, is just part one, then you need to actually act on the decision. Uh, another phrase that I thought was great was post-traumatic boss disorder. Uh, that's a good one. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, if you, if you, you know, bosses, you know, you know, insert stress there, but uh, yeah, it's the fact that when we have worked for abusive bosses, uh, if, I don't know if you've had any. I've had way too many when I worked in Hollywood, but those feelings linger with you for many years. Yeah, One of the chapters that kind of bookend that bookends a chapter earlier in the book about the boss, uh, my love letter to horrible bosses. I worked for a TV network, and I felt you know, something whipped whip on my head and my boss threw, had thrown a box of pens at me because they were not the ones she wanted. So instead of just, I asked my students when I teach feedback, might there be any other way to communicate to your employee that they don't <laughs> It's like, no, no, throwing it at their head. That's pretty much it. That's the only way they're going to learn and not do that, right? Um, as it turned out, I did all of the right ones. The supply room sent up the wrong ones, but she didn't want to hear about that. Um, but uh, yeah, the abuse, you know, your body, it stays in you for many years to come. And uh, mm -hmm. I tell the story about how I had a really horrible abusive boss who made my life a living hell for a long time. And then I was in a meeting years later at a conference and I turned around and there she was. And my oh. body reacted as if she was still my boss. I actually started to get nauseous, shake, sweat. I actually had to get up from the room. So here I am, like I'm 55-year-old at the time, a college professor. And yet my body reacted as if I was a little kid who you know, you know, surround, you know, uh, who was re-meeting an abusive parent or something like that. So just our body and our mind, um, it's just in there. So, um, or you could be the opposite, the type of boss. And this relates to another chapter. Uh, what is your leadership weather report? Are you a cloud of doom and gloom or a ray of sunshine who lights up the room, even on Zoom? Um, right. So some people walk into the room and it's like hell froze over, right? And everyone puts their head down and they can't wait for them to leave. And other people have a boss or a leader who walks in and the, the party's starting. Everyone's energized and excited and inspired. So which boss are you? Because you create a climate in your environment and you create weather that will impact other people. Um, so those, you know, the post-traumatic boss disorder is, you know, these memories linger years after they happen, whether they're negative or positive. So which leader do you want to be? Uh, do you I, know the oh, the ahead. the book um, the body knows the score? I've heard of it, but I've never read it. Yeah, it's a really good one, and it's all about how our bodies hold in yeah. that kind yeah. of trauma. Yeah. Go ahead, Guthrie. All right, uh, I think we got one more question here uh, that I'll that I'll ask, and uh, then we'll 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 start to wrap it up. So, the question is, uh, what are your thoughts about the idea that? People will come up with different solutions. Those are the same person would come up with different solutions based on the medium that they're expressing in. So if you have someone solve a problem with words, it would spark a different creative route than if you had it solve you had a person solve it with visuals or dance. So uh, for example, what does it look like if you do a the regional sales back of the napping napkin example that you have in your book mm -hmm. but instead of uh drawing it you have to come up with a solution to the regional sales problem through uh physical movement like interpretive dance mm. uh, is some of the advantage of visual of, of the of doing things visually uh sh shaking just shaking things up and people who always solve problems in one medium having them think about it and solve it a different way yeah, that's interesting. I mean, you know, while my focus is on the visual, we really need to use all of our senses, right? Um, there's that acronym VARC, and I think, Susan, it's in your book, and you may have had the VAC version. A VARC is visual, auditory, reading, writing, and kinesthetic, right? So we take in information visually through sight and pictures, auditorily through what we hear, 
through reading and writing, which is more text-based, and then kinesthetic, which is about movement, feeling, and touch, as you're talking about with interpretive dance. When you leverage all of those modes, and sometimes that this, it's become known as the myth of learning style. So people are not like, oh, I'm an auditory learner or you're a visual learner. Our brains are wired for all of these. So when we leverage all four of these modalities, we will have greater impact in terms of attention, comprehension, retention. So that's why I'd say that um, in answer to your question, if we try different things and use different modes, if we could draw something out, if we use sculpture, if we use you know whatever, dance, um, we may we will probably come up with different solutions because we're leveraging different parts of our brain. And when we do it together, there's that acronym T-E-A-M as a team, together, everyone achieves more. Um, yeah, we leverage the collective brain power. It's almost like you know the phone a friend or the uh, you know crowdsourcing, right? So when we get the more minds we have, sometimes it's too much, but at least we'll, in terms of idea generation, we will come up with more approaches um, and possible solutions than one person just sitting staring at a blank piece of paper or a blank computer screen trying to come up with an answer. So I think that's why with that napkin sketch story, my client who was an expert in his area couldn't see a solution that I saw in 30 seconds because I was detached from it. I didn't have the emotional investment. I didn't have all the details. In fact, I almost didn't even suggest it because I thought it was so obvious he should he would have seen that. Why, what, and the whole thing, I'm an idiot for suggesting something so simplistic. That turned out to be the solution to his problem. So just getting an outside voice, that's why people bring in consultants like me to, as co coaches and to see things from a new lens uh, without, you know, with less of an internal bias. We all have our own biases, but I won't have the same biases that you will because I'm not as close to it and I'm not as emotionally invested in it. So um, that's what I would say is, uh, you know, try different approaches, different things. I use like some of the props I showed you. Sometimes I'll do a workshop. I'll put all the props on the table and I'll say, grab any two randomly, join them together and say, what do they have in common? It could be size, it could be color, it could be thematic, but it just leverages different parts of the brain. Like if I say the word apple, Guthrie, what's the first thing you picture? Apple. Oh, you're on, you're on mute. It's a red apple. Okay. And Susan, apple. Yeah. It was a physical fruit. Okay. Yes, now, physical some, fruit. some people picture the apple logo that's on their computer, on their iPhone. Other people yeah. picture a green apple. Some people picture an apple orchard or an apple tree because they went apple picking a few weeks ago. So just the word apple, um, and is it a Macintosh? Is it a Smith? Is it a Grant? You know, whatever the different types are. So if I say, get me an apple and I need it in a half hour, you may or may not bring back the apple I wanted and needed. You didn't know what I wanted it for. Is it something I'm going to eat? Am I going to use it to sketch? And then you're going to throw it at me. Yeah, exactly. you're going to get a bunch of apples thrown at you. Exactly. <laughs> um, so, so that's the thing. It's like, again, it's very clear in my mind. If I say I need an apple, you don't know what I need it for, what kind I need, et cetera. But that's what managers do. They say, do, and one of the stories in my book, I tell ice, rice, or mice, has this ever happened to you? I was in a restaurant and I asked for some more ice because I needed it for my drink. And they brought me a bowl of white rice because they thought I said rice. So if I wanted ice and you brought me rice, whose fault is it? I always say the burden of communication is on the communicator. And then what could I have done differently? If I held up my glass and said, can I have some more ice and pointed to it, they wouldn't have put white rice in my glass, right? But, you know, with accents, with, you know, people hear what they expect to hear very often, right? So we need to say, all right, I'm talking to a waiter. I already had rice. And I said, can I have some more rice? Might he bring me the wrong thing? Yes. Well, how can I communicate that clearly? And again, that was a minor thing with very low cost, but the story I tell in the book is from one of the theme park companies I worked for, we produced something that was not the right thing that the client wanted and it cost us about $50,000 to redo it. 
So there could be high stakes to a miscommunication or a misunderstanding. Yeah, and I find with the different styles <clears throat> that you talked about, you know, we we tend each person tends to out, either out of habit or what works, what we think works best for us. We tend to communicate, you know, with one or two of them and yeah. forget about the others. And so, one thing is that you know, continually realizing that the people you're communicating with, they might, you know, so I, I'm very auditory, but the person I'm communicating with might not be, not mm -hmm. like information auditory. Yeah. So I need to adjust, but also, um, and I think I mentioned this to you the first time we talked, Todd, that, that for me, you know, vi communicating visually is not my, you know, quote, natural or habitual mm -hmm. style. But when I do that, I, it changes the way I think. Yeah. So it's useful not just for me to communicate because other people might be like to get the information visually, but because it changes my own thought process if I switch it up. Yeah, metaphorically, the left brain, right brain thing, you know, you could be a heavy, you know, I remember left brain, linear and logical, right? So that's the words and numbers side. Re leverage that, you know, right, I always remember left brain, logical, right brain, rhythm. That's the music and the creativity side. If as a left brain person, you know, if you leverage the right brain, you'll come up with more ideas, you'll think differently, you'll yeah. think, right? So yeah, that's a great point. It's not just for other people, but for ourselves to see things from different angles and different perspectives and find the color, you know, alternatives, you know, something, you know, may, you may always be doing something in blue, but what if you did the red version or the green version, or the purple version, how would that change, you know, mm -hmm. symbolically? So like one another prop I keep on my desk is this traffic signal, which represents stop, start, and continue. So I may say to a client, what's working that you want to continue doing? What's not working that you want need to help to stop? And what are some things that you'd like to start doing, right? So just if a client keeps a, this on their desk and it's a stress toy, so you could actually squeeze it when you're very stressed about uh, making these changes. All right, wait a minute. How, how big is this desk? <laughs> it's not that big, but I have a Because you've a held up, in this conversation, you've held up at least 12 props. So, yeah. if Guthrie, if, if I, we're going to get me some props, and I think I really want some props, <laughs> well, I think we're going to have to get me a new desk first. Yeah. So, you I know what I should do? You just, gave me an amazing, you just gave me an amazing idea. I could buy all of these, package them as a visual leadership prop collection. Would you please? Ooh, that's good. Would you please? Mark, Mark. I, I will sign up to buy the first. Yeah. The first box. It could be like fifty dollars worth of stuff. I could sell it for two hundred and fifty. I'll give you the discount, uh, you know, the free version. But like this one, this this is one of my favorites. Like if we keep our minds closed and say I'm not a visual thinker, you're going to be stuck there. But if you expand your mind and say maybe there's potential, creates all this space. All right, he's 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 holding up one of those kind it's of toy things. Hober, it's called a Hoberman sphere, is what the official name is. I love the I love the props and the toys. Yeah. Todd, this has been so great. I feel like we could probably keep going for like huh. ever. So well, we won't keep going forever. Um, uh, let's just remind people the name of the book is called Visual Leadership. When where where can they buy it? Uh, anywhere books are sold, mainly Amazon, but they just started carrying it at Barnes and Noble here in New York. I'm not sure oh, if they have any others. So, that's, so fun. that's fun. Yeah, so I walk into my local Barnes and Noble. Yeah, There's one yeah. three blocks away, and it's I visited. I've sold a few copies, saying to people, "Hey, have you ever heard of this one?" So, um, so whenever my wife can't find me, I say, "Just assume I'm at the Barnes and Noble <laughs> selling." <laughs> I'm stalking people. Um, so yeah. So, if, but it's not in every Barnes and Noble. So Amazon is the most likely, but it is in a few okay. other places as well.
And if people want to get hold of you, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, one is to just visit my website, toddchurches.com, and it's C-H-E-R-C-H-E-S. And I also have my company website, bigbluegumball.com, which is more for my consulting and training practice. But visually, uh, toddchurches.com, you'll find um, you'll be able to download my list. Uh, you, you'll get a pop-up to download my list of the 52 books that had the greatest impact on my Wonderful. work. And uh, Susan, you're on that list. The hundred things. Hey, so, I um, made it on the yeah, list. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, so to, uh, but also connect with me on LinkedIn. I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn. Okay. It's great. So just say you saw me with, on Susan and Guthrie's show. Uh, just drop me a note, and uh, happy to connect and continue the conversation uh, on social media on LinkedIn. So great to have you I, on. I really, uh, I just really love the idea of, of the visual idea of a bunch of sort of very stuffy business people in suits and stuff, trying to brainstorm how to get 4% higher annual sales through interpretive dance, ah, in like some, okay, some terrible Guthrie. corporate, corporate you, room. That's you hold on to that it's, thought. That's, that's just a, it's we, a yeah, thought we'll, we'll have you lead the dance. How's that? Yeah. You, and you let us know, or, or, you know, tap dancing, whatever kind of dancing you want to use. People do tap dance around an answer, a response, right? When they're not sure what they're going to. Solving UX research problems through tap. But, but real, a real life example. I do, I did a, I was doing a workshop for a group of 20 CEOs here in New York and, and, um, the exercise, and if you want to look up this article, it's on Inc. Magazine. Uh, it's called, Can You Draw What Your Company Does? And that's the exercise. Executives mm -hmm. have to get up at a, on a piece of paper or the whiteboard and literally, as if they're playing Pictionary, draw what, is the, what it is that your company does, how is it, um, and how is it different from and better than the competition? And oh, in that hard. article, I won't tell the whole story, but you'll get the story of how that completely changed the way this company focused mm -hmm their attention and represented, they came up with a metaphor. So sometimes it's linear and, and literal, like here's a process map or a storyboard. And other times people come up with a creative metaphor that represents, you know, in, in the process of explaining. And the two of them were friends for like 15 years. And one of them said to the other, until you mapped out what you do and your supply chain and everything else and explained it to me, I really had no idea. Now I understand where your problems are and he has, now I can help you. Because before mm -hmm. that, it was just a very abstract, I'm struggling with this. But now I see where there's a, a, a break in the chain. So just, again, there are practical applications. But imagine you, know, you have a group of CEOs and you start handing out crayons and colored markers and big pieces of paper. The initial reaction is not always enthusiastic. But by, yeah. the, end of the, by, by the end of the 10 minutes, of drawing people like, can we have some more time? Can I have some more colors? So, <laughs> and, and we hadn't really talked about, but the idea of play, you know, play yes. as it relates to innovation and making things fun because business is serious. Um, there are risks involved, but if you can lighten the mood, then it leads to better ideas, greater ideas. I was once facilitating an innovation workshop and I was doing some warm ups and break. It was a full day thing. And the CEO looked at his watch and said, we've been here 45 minutes and we haven't come up with no one new product idea yet. And like he was so impatient to get to the end of the day. And I yeah. said, trust the process. You know, we'll get there, but it's not going to happen. If it was that easy, you wouldn't even been needed me, right? Uh, right. To do so you need to be patient. You need to play. You need to have fun. You need to try new things and different modalities. Otherwise, it's the Einstein quote, right? We keep doing the same thing the same way and expecting a different result. That's just not going to happen. So. Right. Great. Love it. Thank you so much, Todd, for joining us. And uh, let's you. stay in touch. Sounds great. Have Thank a great day. You. Thank Bye. You guys.